0: We're in Matthew 5 this morning. Over the next weeks and months, we're going to be journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Now, when you look at it, and and the most famous portions of of the Sermon on the Mount is the the Blessed Are, and the Blessed Are, and understanding these things. And Over the last weeks and months, I've been reading uh, the Sermon on the Mount most days and trying to prepare myself for this. And each and every encounter with this leaves me in the sense of understanding of, man, I am so far from hitting this. And so it causes me to fall back once again into the arms of grace, into the arms of recognizing that a legalistic approach or a checklist approach of of saying, oh, I got that, oh, I'm a peacemaker, oh, I've got that, is certainly a wrong-headed approach into uh, entering into studying the Beatitudes. It's certainly a wrong-headed approach just to the Sermon on the Mount in general. And in fact, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to understand it first in terms of kind of its overarching context, kind of where does it find itself within the Bible? Well, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 23, uh, something interesting is said. And so if you want to find your way there, Matthew writes, he says, Speaking of Jesus, And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Well, Matthew's going to repeat those same words In the ninth chapter, in chapter 9 and verse 35. And essentially what he's telling us is that between 4.23 and and, and chapter 9 and verse 35 exists a unit of text. Exists a, a, a statement and it's communicating something really particular about Jesus and who he is. And so if you're to take this idea, really these twin ideas of teaching and healing, and then try and find them to locate them on that section of, of text that begins in 423, and that runs all the way through the end of chapter 9, what you're going to find is that chapters 5 through 7, what we have is Jesus teaching. And man, it's this, this pure, uh, distilled Jesus just, just leveled upon us, and it is so beautiful and wonderful to behold and to ingest and to drink from. And then what you would find if you move into chapters 8 and 9 is that you move outside of just straight teaching of Jesus to receiving just this miraculous display of Jesus' healing. So we have this large section of text that begins in 423 that runs all the way through chapter 9. and the totality of all of it, everything written in there is communicating one thing. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. How do you respond? This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. How do you respond? So even today, even today as we move into this understanding of the first couple of verses, we're going to begin to see this is who Jesus is. And even today we're going to have to answer the question of how do I respond? Already within the gospel of Matthew, we've seen a number of things open up. We've seen Jesus kind of arrive on the scene. He, uh, his birth narrative we see his encounter with John the Baptist when he's baptized. He goes out into the wilderness and he is tempted. And then we see that the beginning of the kind of the, the calling of the disciples, the calling of these first four that would become the kind of the nucleus of this group that he's putting together. And so Jesus is going around and he's doing these things and he is building uh, not so small of a call, not so small of a uh, gathering around him. In fact, if you pick up in verse twenty three in those words we just read a moment ago, look what we find about him. He's traveling all through Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, earlier in Mark and earlier in Matthew, we find that effectively what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so he's calling people into action. He's calling people into belief. He's calling them to understand something about who he is. And he's calling them in obedience to continue to follow him over the course of what would be his three-year run of ministry. And so the same thing he's doing prior to notoriety, he's doing in their synagogues. And so you can imagine Jesus walking in. It was not uncommon for a teacher to be able to teach when they arrived on the scene. And so imagine if somebody came in the back door this morning And we said, look, Matt's kind of a hack. Why don't you speak today? And so they get up, and and so they say, what were you going to talk about? I said, well, I was going to talk about Matthew chapter 5. And they say, okay, well, I can do that. And so he gets Matthew chapter 5 out, and he begins to read it. And then he begins to expound it, and he begins to teach it. And universally, each and every time Jesus goes into the room and begins to teach, people are blown away. Because this isn't teaching like any teaching they've ever heard before. This is not dry. This is not dead. This is vibrant. This is the Word of God teaching in their midst, So he does this in the synagogues. And over and over and over again, people are encountering, seeing, experiencing Jesus. And moving from the synagogues, he begins to move out and he sees people with malady. He sees people with sickness. And so Matthew gives us a snapshot. He says he heals all kinds of diseases. So imagine if, if you set up shop in Greenville, Texas, and, and you had this, this healing ministry. And people begin to hear about it. And so people now from from Quinlan are coming up and from uh, Kingston are coming down and from McKinney are coming east and from Texarkana are coming west. And and up in Oklahoma, even, they find that the best road out of Oklahoma is I-35. And they begin to come south. And people in Houston discover that there's nothing great down there, so they begin to come up north. And all around, people are coming and seeing because they know the notoriety of what you can do. And the same phenomenon is occurring, is happening for Jesus. That as people hear and see, man, this guy doesn't teach like anybody else. Man, this guy, not just is his teaching great, but he is able to affect and bring permanent physical change in our lives. Look at all those that he heals pains, those oppressed by demons. So he shows himself to be over the, 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 the demons. He shows himself to be over the dark forces that follow Satan, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus isn't just bringing comfort to these people's lives, he is bringing radical change in physical healing to their lives. Now he's doing something at the same time as this. Isaiah chapter 35. In verses 5 and 6, we read these words speaking of what it's going to be like when the Messiah arrives. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So Jesus is arriving on the scene and he's doing these things and he's he's teaching in this marvelous way. In fact, Nicodemus responding about Jesus' teaching in John 3, 2 said, No one teaches like this. No one does these things. And we know that you are an authority. We know that you're different because no one could do these things unless he was sent by God. So all these people are gathering around. The thousands are gathering around, and they're, they're following Jesus. And, and he begins to notice, he begins to look out and see just exactly how many people are there. And in verse 25, it goes on and says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so Jesus, what we see in, in, in chapter 5 and verse 1, he looks out and he sees the crowd. Now, imagine this. Jesus is, is down, and he's on this level with them, and, and the area that they're in has rolling hills, and so he's got to get a better vantage point, one, for him to see them, and two, for, them to see, for him to see them and them to see him. And so he looks, and he turns, and he begins to walk up this mountain, and he sits when he gets up there, because you see, uh, within the, Jesus' day, the day that he taught, in, in this, we would not have nearly as many people, but we also wouldn't have to set up nearly as many chairs. The teacher sits, and the student stands. So imagine, yeah, Johnny's saying, <laughs> <laughs> you, keep that, you keep that new age ideology out of here. <laughs> but imagine if you stood the whole time, and he's sitting, and he's teaching, and you're pouring out. Now, one of the fascinating things about what Matthew has done for us within this is he's taken all these various sayings of Jesus and he compiles them into this one section. If you were to read all of chapter 5 through chapter 7 it would take you about 10 minutes but we get the understanding that as he is there as he is there that this is likely over many days that he's expounding these things and so Matthew's kind of taken the the high points of this and put them all here within chapter 5 for us to digest. So Jesus sees the crowds, he comes up on the mountain, and he sits down. Now, when he does this, he's communicating to us a number of different things. So maybe you read this and you say, well, this is really curious. What's he doing up there? What exactly is he trying to point out? Jesus is, is, is giving a picture of himself as being this new and better Moses. And you say, "No, how, no what's that all about? Well, throughout Jesus' life up to this point, there have been a number of things that you might also draw parallels from in Moses' life. And so when Jesus is born, uh, babies are being put to death. And we see, well, this happened too for Moses, right? You remember his mom? She took him, she put him in the basket, and she sent him down the river. Jesus flees. Moses fleed. Moses wandered in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Moses went up on the mountain to hear from God. When Jesus goes up on the mountain, he displays that he is, in fact, God. So Jesus is, is showing us That he's not just like Moses, but he is a new and a better Moses. Now see that. What happens when Moses goes up on the mountain? He hears from God, right? He's up there for a long period of time, and the people are just kind of doing whatever down there. And then Moses has to come back down and set it right. When Jesus goes up on the mountain, he is God communicating to the people. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He is broken, and he is fallible. And he goes up to hear from God, to come down and communicate to the people. When Jesus goes up on the mountain, he is perfect, and he will be broken. And he goes up to speak to the people from that place. So he has the masses before him. He has the masses before him, and he begins to communicate to them. And I just want to run through kind of a survey of some of the things that that we're going to look at in depth over the next months, so that you can begin to get a taste and see just the level of, of difficulty and the profundity to which Jesus is communicating to these people. So he goes up and he sits down and he calls the disciples to him. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now around the time that Jesus is speaking and teaching, history tells us there are something around 60 men vying for the position communicating to others that they're the Messiah, that they're the one who has come, who's going to set things straight. know, Jesus is a class set apart, and we see this and we understand this on the basis of the miracles he's performing and the teaching he's communicating. And so what Jesus seeks to do in chapters 5 through 7 is show that there is no one on par. There is no one on this level with him. And it's curious though, isn't it? That when Jesus opens up to speak, and if he wants to set himself apart from all those people around himself, that he doesn't just get up there and say, um, I'm the son of God. like think everybody else, they're just fakers and posers. You just need to follow me, and we're going to set this thing straight. He had every authority to do that. He had every authority to come in and at a word cause them to bow down and to worship him. But what does he do instead? He comes in, and he has the most power imaginable. He has infinite resources of power at his disposal, at his beck and call. And what does he say to them? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're just overjoyed. You got here early, and you got a parking spot, and so you're just like, yes, yes. You're sitting in one of the padded chairs instead of the pews, and so you're thinking, yes. If you're sitting in the on the benches, you're thinking, I'm beginning to understand what poor in spirit is all about. I don't know this much. I'm bring in a pillow next week. Poor in spirit. So he goes on. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he's giving us this order that we look at and say it's paradoxical. It makes no sense in our categories. When we run in and we encounter people, and you're, maybe you're a greeter at Walmart, and you see somebody coming in, they look forlorn, they look just kind of weighted down with the, joy, with, with the world and just the pain of the world. You don't look at them and say, man, you look like your life is really terrible. Blessed are you, right? What would you get if you did that? Right? <laughs> Right? You get the grumbles or a slap across the face. Probably the grumbles and a slap across the face. But this is what Jesus does. He calls us to recognize that the vantage point from which we see life isn't strictly on this plane that makes sense to everybody else. As a people, as a society, we value ease. As a people in a society, we value comfort. As a people, in a society, we value self. And we want these things to go so incredibly well for ourselves, right? Then we encounter Jesus. And from the very moment he begins to talk to us, he says, it is good for you to be broken and in need. It is good for you. To be overcome with sadness. It is good for you not to have the belongings and the entrapments of this world. And it is good for you. He uses this picture of hungering and thirsting. I can scarcely remember a time in my life where I have been hungry and thought, this is so good. I love the rumble in the empty feeling. If I could just bottle this, I could make a fortune, right? It's just not there. I think every diet I've ever been on, there's this this part in me that just gets so angry and the hungry, come on now, the angrier I get, the, the hungrier I get, the angrier I get, especially diets that cut out bread. I, I just I think those are of the devil. When Jesus was healing demoniacs, he said, Now all you, all you who don't do bread, not because you're allergic to gluten and you have celiac, but just because you have a moral you know, reason to abstain from bread. I'm going I'm to pick you up later. And so we got the demoniacs and i got you people who are hating on bread. There's this idea that when I can't have bread, I just get bread angry, right? And so he gets in there and all of these things we find hunger and thirst. These things that we should be opposed to. These things that we should not enjoy, Jesus inverts them and he says, these things we shall find our satisfaction in. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Listen to this, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We want ease. We want comfort. We want to be left alone. I want to exercise Christianity. I want to exercise my personal faith in Jesus over here, and I want it to be in this insulated understanding of not being assaulted. To be a Christian, to be one who follows Jesus, is to welcome persecution. It's not that we run around stupidly doing things to invite difficulty into our life, but it's to look at persecution and not to shun it, not to stiff-arm it, but to recognize that it is part and parcel of what it is to be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. He moves on to verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil on your, uh, about you, against you, falsely on my account. I don't know where you are this morning, but I'm willing to bet that most of us in this room, man, it hurts When somebody says something about us, when they uh, fire off an allegation towards us, especially if that thing is not true. But according to Jesus, looking at this, Jesus says that you are blessed when people fire off allegations and when people fire off things and say bad things about you because of the identity of Christ flowing in your life. This is who Jesus is. When Jesus was spoken against, when Jesus was beaten, when Jesus was mocked. In some sense, he was giving us this picture of what it looks like to walk in his footsteps. Of what it looks like to follow him. When I was in uh, elementary school and kind of leading up into junior high school, my brother attended the same school that I did. And he's six years older than I am. And just, I'm tall and thin and he's not. And so he was, he was just kind of just a really stocky guy. I think that's a, good, that's a good word to use. He was a stocky guy at that point in his life. And if anybody said something about me, did something to me, man, he would just make them really rue the day they had said that. He would just bring the pain. And so it was really cool for me to have that, where my brother could just, I'd be like, so-and-so did this. He'd like, Mom, of it." And so <clears throat> that's not how he talks, but in my mind, that's kind of how it was. Puberty was a rough time for him. And so as we went through this, and so I had this, this understanding of what it was like for my brother to create ease for me because he went ahead of me. I think invariably sometimes we bring that same idea in with Jesus and think Jesus suffered all these things. Jesus is mocked. Jesus went ahead of me, and he cleared all those things out for me so I don't have to encounter those things. If you're a Christian you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, nothing could be further from the truth for you. Jesus did not move and clear all that difficulty out of the way from you so that your life would be some, some uh, makings of the Christian American dream, so that your route to... Church in the morning might be filled with, you know, nothing but great songs on 94.9 so that there would be no traffic, so that no one would park in your spot, so that the air conditioner would always work, so that you would have to do nothing, so that everybody you encounter would like you, love you, and never say anything bad against you. Jesus did not die on a cross to make those things a reality for you. Jesus, in dying on the cross, in suffering the slings and the arrows of all those he was coming to save, gave us a pattern of what it would look like to follow Jesus. Following Jesus... It's not for the faint of heart. Following Jesus is not for those who would seek to exalt their own kingdom. Following Jesus is not those who would say, I want it to be this way, and if Christianity could just look like this, then then I think I would be willing to entertain it. You see, when we come to faith and belief in Jesus, it's looking at all of our preferences. It's looking at all of our desires and checking them at the door. It's looking at all the difficulty that comes our way from being a Christian and wel- welcoming it because in that, then it means that you and I were chosen to suffer as he has suffered. And we rejoice in our sufferings. And we rejoice when we mourn. And we rejoice in all of these things because we recognize that as they treated him, so too they should treat us. Recognizing that. We get into verse uh, 13 and 14. And Jesus has this amazing statement of us, of those who are following him. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Verse 14, he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He gives two pictures of what a church, what Christians should be. He says, our very presence in the lives of those we encounter should affect change. It should meet something different for them. And so if you're a Christian, if you're someone who says, my heart belongs to Jesus, my life belongs to Jesus, everything I have belongs to Him, your presence in a lost environment, your presence in a lost relationship, so you're close uh, to to a non-believer, you work close to non-believers, your very presence, close presence in their lives, should affect change in them. You are the salt of the earth. And so our close presence, our close proximity for the 10 months we're here in this school should affect change at Bowie. Man, we're walking up and down these hallways. We're praying for the teachers. We're praying for the students. We're looking for things we can do to make this school a good place to be. We're looking for spiritual boundaries and barriers that we can pray back and push back. We're looking for opportunities to invest in the lives of the students and and invest in the lives of the teachers and invest in the lives of the administration. We're the salt of the earth. We're the salt of the earth at Walmart, on Stonewall, on Wesley a lot of the time. We're the salt of the earth. Our lives and the investment therein of those around us should produce change in them. So he looks at it next. He says, you are the light of the world. So he has this this really odd statement. He says, you you can't hide a city on a hill. In essence, it, it makes no sense that you would try and obscure this thing. He's talking about, in that, instance, in that instance, the kind of plains that go on for a long ways. And so if you have a city that sits high up on the hill, you can see it from a long distance, from a terrific ways away. And so he says, look, it doesn't make any sense that you would come in and you would construct walls to, to hide this. It doesn't make any sense that you would come in and put a dome over the top of this to keep any light from escaping so that nobody could see it. Because that doesn't make any sense. See, as we begin to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what he's calling us to be, the question that rolls through our mind over and again is, how am I being solved? How is my very presence in the lives of those around me changing and affecting them? How am I being alive? Those I don't have close investment with, those I don't have close uh, contact with, how are they seeing Jesus in me? How are they seeing Jesus in my activities? And as they begin to see those, and as we begin to answer that that question correctly, we find that we we are joining in with the crowds that heard Jesus, moving in line with chapter 8 and verse 1. I just want you to look at this as we close. Jesus has taught likely over many days what's condensed for us in about 10 minutes of reading out loud. But in chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. We've got about 20 weeks or so that we're breaking this out and looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We don't wait till we get to the end to ask the question. We begin asking the question, and we begin by answering the question. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would, through our study of seeing who your son is, through our study of seeing what he said, that we would choose to follow him. Just like when he steps in for the disciples, they abandoned all of their professional pursuits. They left their families and they followed Jesus. God, would that be true of us? Would that that could be said of us and seen in us? Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. And they know a lot about church. They know a lot about Jesus. But they have never surrendered themselves to him. They don't have a personal relationship with him. So God, we pray for them. That they would recognize that they are a sinner set apart from your love. They have personally transgressed sinned against you. In Jesus, they may have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus who came in perfection, who surrendered his life upon a cross, who paid the penalty for sin and death, and who rose again on the third day, and who sits high and exalted with you and reigns forever. This same Jesus, he bids them come. Come and be forgiven. Come and find love everlasting. Come and receive. We see who Jesus is. We hear what Jesus taught. Let us be those who choose to follow him. We pray these things in Christ's name.